This is Core of the Matter, the public affairs forum of 90.3 The Core. I'm Tom, and this week we're talking about hospice care. My guests today are Jill Levine, president of Grace Healthcare Services, and Elsa Fuentes, community representative. Welcome to Core of the Matter. Welcome to Core of the Matter. Jill, you're the uh, the president of uh, Grace Healthcare Services. Can you give me a little bit about your background experience in hospice, hospice care? Sure. I actually am also the administrator for the program. Um, I started in hospice about a decade ago. Um, prior to that, I spent about 25 years aging myself, I know, in um, home care. Um, I actually started in hospice um, running a program in San Diego and then moved back to my home state of New Jersey in 2002 and started a program in New Jersey for the same company. I have really developed a love for hospice, and um, we'll tell you a little bit more about the history of Grace a little bit later on in the broadcast. So that is um, how I got into hospice care. Super. And Elsa and yourself, your background and experience in hospice? Yes. uh, I started hospice um, in Florida, It was at the time the company I was with, we were taking care of AIDS patients. My cousin uh, was uh, diagnosed with AIDS, and um, the company that I ended up working with was taking care of him, and I was very impressed with the care. And uh, that's how my love for hospice started, uh, from a personal experience. Uh, I am a medical technologist, so I have uh, a lot of uh, healthcare experience. And I've been in hospice since 1990. Jill, you mentioned um, home care and hospice. And I guess for our listeners, maybe we should get an understanding exactly what hospice care is. And, and then maybe you can tell me what the difference is between that and home care. Sure. Um, the di- one of the biggest differences between hospice and home care is that traditional home care is more restorative, rehabilitative care, whereas hospice care is comfort care or what uh, a phrase that most people might be familiar with is palliative care. So that is one of the biggest differences. In addition, uh, in order to qualify for hospice care, you must have a life-limiting prognosis of six months or less if the disease were to run its normal course. In home care, the criteria for admission to a home care program is uh, very different. And does Grace provide uh, both uh, types of care services? The, we are we just provide hospice care, yet we do provide hospice in people's homes nursing homes, assisted living residences, as well as hospitals. What are the origins of hospice care? How did it get started? One of the pioneers in hospice care was Dame Cicely Saunders, who in the 1960s started what was really the first inpatient hospice program, St. Christopher's in London. There is a long history of hospice. The word actually does translate into a shelter or place to go, and uh, hospice was actually a place where people would go to die. After um, Dame Cicely Saunders started St. Christopher's in London, she came over to the States and started presenting and teaching at Yale um, School of Nursing in 1964. Several years later, um, someone that people have probably heard of is uh, is Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who wrote the book on death and dying, which really very much brought a conversation about death and dying to the dinner table, for lack of a better word. Um, The first hospice was started in the U.S. in Connecticut in 1974, and it was Connecticut Hospice. 
Uh, and that is, uh, that's very much how hospice began in the United States. Later on in the 70s, there was a benefit developed by the Healthcare Finance Administration where the government did finally reimburse for hospice under the Medicare benefit. Prior to that, hospice was very much a volunteer service, and with the services being provided by all volunteers um, without a reimbursement mechanism. It started as a volunteer uh, service. Is it fair to say that uh, today it, it, it's a significant part of the healthcare system, though, as we know it in the United States? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I actually do have to correct something I did um, relate to you that in the late 70s, uh, the Healthcare Finance Administration did have a demonstration project where this was done throughout the country, and it was not until the early 80s that Congress did establish again, a mechanism for reimbursement through Medicare. Um, So, yes. And in answer to the question, is hospice a significant part of of the government and reimbursement? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Expenditures for the Medicare hospice benefit have increased approximately a billion dollars per year. In 1998, for instance, um, Medicare spent about $2.2 billion on hospice, while in 2008... Medicare spent about $11.2 billion on hospice. So you can see there's been significant growth in the industry. That is uh, significant. How do those dollars translate to the number of patients that are receiving hospice care during the same relevant time period that you uh, just discussed? Can you give us a ballpark figure on that? There were twice as many hospice patients receiving care in 2008 versus 1998. I can tell you that specifically in New Jersey, 35,000 patients were served last year, which is a 6 to 8% increase over the previous year, specifically in New Jersey. Okay, so that's a general background of hospice. Uh, I don't know, Elsa, if you have anything to add uh, based on your experiences to the, the the rise or increase in the use of hospice during the time that you've been involved in the care program? Not really. It's being used more, even though at times we we we, we encounter certain resistance from, from the community, and, uh, and it's a shame because it's a great service uh, to be provided in the home care for those patients that need it. All right. I'd, I'd like maybe to revisit that uh, later towards the end of the program about the resistance both in the community and whether there's any resistance... Uh, by the medical profession with respect to uh, hospice care. Turning now for a little bit, um, that's a general background on hospices. What type of issues are faced by a hospice uh, ter- uh, caretaker, uh, both with those that are receiving the, the care and um, their family members or the people that are close to them? Maybe you can talk a little bit about to that. Um, some of the issues faced by the caregivers, um, as in any type of situation where you have someone with a life-limiting illness, is uh, probably caregiver burnout, that the caregiver really has to ensure that they do take care of themselves, and that's the value of the hospice team coming in. The hospice team is comprised of a nurse, chaplain, social worker, um, home health aide, and volunteer, as well as um, each team also has a physician, a team physician, who does help oversee the care. But there is a lot of support for not just the patient, but the patient and the family are viewed as a whole 
in terms of uh, our approach to care. And we ensure that there's a lot of support for the family members too. Because again, uh, it's not just the caregiving act um, that will be detrimental to, again, the, the folks that are caring for the patient, but it's also just facing those issues at end of life and even accepting that the person may not be with you um, at some period of time. The hospice team that you talked about, um, what role does uh, Grace Healthcare play in that team? Um, that team is employed by Grace Healthcare, and uh, Grace, uh, my current service area is Bergen County. Um, we provide care in Bergen, Essex, Passaic, Hudson, Morris, Middlesex, Union, Monmouth, Ocean, Atlantic, Cape May, Counties. Um, I hope I mentioned all of them. Somerset. Thank you. And Somerset counties. And on each of our teams, again, we have a team of nurses, chaplain social workers, home health aides uh, who do provide the direct uh, patient care and, again, support for the family. And Elsa, is it fair to say that as uh, the community representative, you're a member of that team as well? And if so, what, uh, what role do you play in that? Yes, I am uh, part of the, of the team. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, my role is um, basically as a uh, liaison between the uh, hospital case, case managers, the doctors, the families, uh, to teach, to educate about what hospice is all about. Like Jill said before, uh, we work with the whole family dynamics to help the, not only the patient but the, uh, the uh, caregiver. And one of the things that we try to teach the, the uh, doctors, especially the family members, is the earlier that we receive that referral uh, for hospice care, we can help the whole uh, family dynamics, help them understand the journey, the journey to the end or to uh, whatever is going to happen. Thank you. The, um, how does one come about? being first determined whether they, they're in, I don't want to say entitled, but, but they're, they're in need of receiving hospice care. And, and second, are there, are there various degrees of uh, hospice care that you provide and how do you determine you know, what, what type of care you provide to a, to a patient? Sure, I'd be happy to answer that, but first I was remiss in not mentioning community representatives as being part of the team. Elsa um, has a very critical role within the team in that it is the role of our community representatives to go out and educate um, consumers and others and really open up the doors for the team in the communities that we serve. So, sorry, Elsa, <laughs> I will backpedal on that one for a second. <laughs> no problem. Um, people are... Uh, Um, Hospice, anybody who has traditional Medicare is entitled to the hospice benefit. Uh, The other payers for hospice are Medicaid as well as private insurance. And most insurance plans do have a hospice benefit because hospice is not just restricted to those of Medicare age. So, um, again, there are multiple ways that hospice is reimbursed. It, part of this process, I'm, I'm assuming there's a consultation with the, the medical uh, providers, the ca- caretakers there. What, uh, do you facilitate that, that process, and if so what, uh, what is your role there? Physicians are key in terms of opening up the door for hospice. The physician has to make a decision that, again, their patient does have a life-limiting prognosis. And that 
and determining that is not an exact science, which is why the benefit is written that, again, someone must have a life-limiting prognosis of six months or less if the disease were to run its normal course. One thing I do want to mention is that some people don't understand that not everybody dies on hospice. I, that was actually an eye-opener for me when I got into hospice. I just assumed that everybody on hospice, they will die, but they don't. There are some people that quote-unquote graduate from hospice because they no longer meet criteria. And the criteria is very specific, and it is based on the diagnosis that someone is admitted onto hospice for. But um, back to your original question, yes, um, physicians are key. They will generally have to have a conversation with the patient and family explaining the disease process, explaining that aggressive curative treatment may no longer be beneficial, that that people should look at the option of comfort care or palliative care. The doctor will write an order for a hospice evaluation. Our nurse will go out, meet with the patient and family, explain the benefit, and assess the patient's appropriateness for hospice. Once that uh, consultation is completed and the, the patient and the family members decide upon hospice care, what's the next step in this process? Uh, again, consents are signed. The nurse evaluates if the patient is deemed to be appropriate. Two physicians must sign and state that this patient does meet criteria. That will be the atta- patient's attending physician and the hospice medical director. Uh, services start immediately. And when we receive a referral, we are out there within two hours. That is our commitment because sometimes we get very late referrals. We have actually had patients who die when they are sometimes during the course of intake. So that, I'm sorry, go ahead. Um, so that is, um, that is, those are the sad stories. You're listening to Core of the Matter on 90.3 of the Core, streaming online at thecore.fm. My name is Tom, and I'm talking about hospice care with Joe Levine, president of Grace Healthcare Services here in New Jersey, and Elsa Fuentes, a community representative, team member of Grace Healthcare Services. Core of the Matter, we'll be right back after this. This is Core of the Matter on 90.3 The Core, streaming online at thecore.fm. Again, my name is Tom, and I'm talking about hospice care with Jill Levine, president of Grace Healthcare Services, and Elsa Fuentes, community representative. Before the break, we were talking a little bit about the uh, what happens uh, once a referral is given to Grace Healthcare of a patient that has had prognosis requiring uh, hospice care. And um, following up a little bit on that, uh, Jill and Elsa, I'd like to talk about is there any particular training or preparation that you've got to sit down and do with uh, the family care members or wherever the patient's going to be located during the time that they're receiving the hospice care? Yes, uh, our team is responsible for continuing to teach and educate the family, um, either family members, nursing home staff, or the staff where the patient resides. Um, there's continued Education. In addition, at time of admission, we give everybody a patient and family handbook, which also explains the dying process. So we do what we can to prepare people as much as possible and to also deal with people who are struggling with the fact that, again, they are caring for somebody who has a life-limiting prognosis or they're considered to be terminally ill. Elsa, as the uh, community representative, do you also get involved in, in, part, in this part of the process as well? 
Uh, yes, I do. Um, I meet with uh, the family members and I discuss the, the program. Um, there are sometimes some misconceptions in, in the community that um, hospice is only for cancer patients because originally that's how the benefit started. But uh, like Jill has been saying, it's a, any life-limiting illness. So we take care of patients with uh, Alzheimer's, dementia, COPD, heart conditions, and uh, as long as there is a doctor's order stating that there is a life-limiting illness of less than six months. And for the, myself and the benefit of our listeners, what is COPD? Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Okay, thank you. Um, just changing a little bit now, we, we've talked generally about uh, hospice care, its origins, what its purposes uh, are, how uh, Congress got involved in it and everything. But on a personal note, I'd just like to talk to both of you about how you, both of you got involved in hospice and, and what it means to you to provide this care to, to our community. Jill, you want to go first? Sure. And actually, the inspiration for Grace was my best friend, Noreen Goldenberg Hunt, who um, Noreen sadly passed away in May of 2005. But I had actually been in hospice at the time that Noreen was first diagnosed with cancer. And the hospice that I was working at, um, I, sadly, I was not confident in the team that would have been caring for her. I knew maybe a nurse there who would have been great. I knew a chaplain who worked for another hospice, a social worker, and decided this is not a good thing. So uh, our mission was, um, after Noreen had died, um, to start a hospice program where you were confident that when people went out, you really had the best care. I always say in hospice, there are no second chances that you have to do it right the first time because this is certainly a time that people remember. In addition, it is critical to remember the privilege it is to provide care and be welcomed into people's lives during this time and transition. But Noreen was our inspiration, and she's with us every day. So um, Grace is dedicated to Noreen. Thank you. Elsa? Yes, like I said at the, at the beginning of the program, um, back in um, the 90s, my cousin was diagnosed with AIDS. And um, it, it, was, it was a very difficult time for, for my aunt and for all of us. And I was extremely impressed with the care. And just like a lot of our families out there, I wasn't aware at the time of the benefits uh, of hospice. So it was, a, it was a learning process for me. And once uh, he, he died, uh, there was a, a, a possibility of working with this company that took care of him in Florida. And uh, that's when I started my, uh, my journey with uh, hospice in, in uh, the community. So you've both had uh, very personal experiences that involved either getting to know hospice or learning about hospice, uh, Jill, Noreen with you, and, and Elsa with your cousin. I mean, to me, that's got to be particularly challenging on a day-to-day -day basis because putting aside the personal aspect, obviously you knew both of these individuals, but mm -hmm. but on a, on a daily basis, you got to come to know the family members that you're providing the hospice care through Grace Healthcare Systems, and, and that's got to be challenging in itself. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit about that and some other uh, challenges that are presented to you as the caregivers uh, for hospice care. Joe, you want to go first on that? Sure. Um, actually, in my role, um, unfortunately, I don't get to meet most of our patients except when I go out with 
folks like Elsa, our community reps, and that's always, again, it's, it's wonderful because it always reminds me of why we do what we do. I think it's kind of a double-edged sword. Um, when you do have a personal experience, it makes it also very different, and I guess it makes me less tolerant of problems um, as administrator for the program because, again, I, when I make decisions, even if they are business, quote-unquote, business decisions, I always think my first question, I, I challenge our team leaders, whether uh, clinical director, anybody who comes to me, what's best for the patient and family? And if I make a decision and uh, to do what's best for patient and family, I know it's the right thing. So that's really what drives my, my uh, how the program is really run. Uh, for me, uh, as, a, as a community rep, um, not only do I deal with the day-to-day uh, business of meeting with the doctors and the ca- uh, case managers from the hospitals, the nursing home, and, and assisted living facilities, but then I really love the, the be able to meet with the family members and let them know about the program and let them know about who we are. Um, that makes a difference, especially since I've had that experience. Uh, maybe I'm a little bit more uh, demanding, like Jill says, with um, you know, with the care. And I know what I what I want us to do, and I know what what we can uh, offer. And anytime we need anything, we call Jill, and then she's right there. Like she said before, whatever the patient needs, we're there f- for them. Um, and you get attached. You do get attached to the families and. Uh, I always give my cell phone, and I get calls from the families, and uh, and you become part of their family, which I think it's one of the most important things for me. I also just want to say that one of the things that we really try to do is ensure that we take care of the staff, because especially our home health aides who are there generally five to seven days a week with the patients, they are very much the front line. They're providing personal care and, again, probably see the patients more often than most of our team members. And we meet with our home health aides on a quarterly basis. Bereavement is always a part of that meeting because they really don't get a chance to grieve the loss of the patients that they care for. The patient dies and they go on to the next patient, you know, or get a different assignment. And again, they get very attached to the patients that they care for, as do most of the team members as well. But our teams meet every two weeks, so they really have an opportunity to share the stories and talk about what's gone on with the patients and sort of do have that opportunity. And it really is critical because there is burnout in this industry based on the nature of the work that we do. So as an organization, it is very important that we provide support to all of our staff members. I can imagine that the uh, the burnout is quite significant uh, based upon the subject matter that you're dealing with. And Elsa, I think that's a very nice touch that you uh, you do provide your cell phone so that you're, I guess you're accessible 24-7 in that regard, correct? Yes, I am. Jill, you've talked uh, throughout the course of today's program about uh, the team and the staff. Uh, can we just talk maybe a little bit more about how a team is, is, I'm assuming a team is different for each patient, how you determine you know, what type of team or care a person gets, and maybe talk about the individual roles and the responsibilities. You, talked, uh, you mentioned a home health care representative. Uh, you know, what role they play uh, in this whole process? 
Sure. Every team, um, what's called the interdisciplinary group or the interdisciplinary team, that's your core team. That is the same um, in each of the areas that we serve. Again, nurses, chaplains, social workers, volunteers, home health aides, and of course, community reps as part of that team. And what happens is the nurse goes out, develops a care plan, talks to the family about what their needs might be, and each care plan is individualized. The nurse, Our nurses go out at least twice a week to see our patients, although we're only required to go out once every two weeks. We have set the standard, a higher standard, of ensuring that every patient gets a nursing visit at least a couple of times a week. It is a person's right to accept or refuse chaplain and social work services. Some people, for instance, may be connected to someone in their own community for that spiritual support, and that's very much the role of the chaplain, is to provide spiritual support. And sometimes it's interesting, you think that pain is physical, sometimes it may be spiritual, and again, the chaplain can help with that, and each team does have a chaplain. Our social worker will also help support the family, provide any um, counseling for the family, as well as finding other resources in the communities for our families. They may also help with Medicaid applications and provide those kinds of services. The nurse, of course, provides the clinical support, determines what medications may be needed in order to manage symptoms, and works closely with the patient's attending physician as well as the hospice medical director. Our home health aides provide personal care, And our volunteers can provide services such as reading to a patient. Uh, We also have crafts groups that we have affiliated with. Many of our volunteers are actually recruited from massage schools because one of the big pieces of our volunteer program that we're very proud of is that we also provide, um, and actually all of our staff are trained in the provision and use of aromatherapy oils and reflexology, but many of our volunteers do provide some touch therapies, so we have a very big volunteer program, and the person who spearheads our program, Hilda McCoy, again, recruits um, many different places, but some of the holistic magazines and things are where we'll place ads, recruiting volunteers, and this is, too, how some of the students at Rutgers can get involved with our program. Um, they can become part of our volunteer um, program if that would be something of interest. And if uh, a student here at directors wanted to get involved, how would they go about contacting uh, you or someone at uh, Grace Healthcare? They can call our office directly, and that phone number is 866-447-0246, and they can ask to speak to Hilda or just let the receptionist know that they are interested in volunteering for us. And there is no commitment. If someone can only give us a couple of hours a week, per se, that that's fine. Hilda also provides a two-day training for our volunteers because uh, we have, again, certain standards at Grace, as well as educating our volunteers on dealing with people with a life-limiting illness. On, on the, the training aspect, uh, Elsa, you want to add something to that? Yes. Uh, for the students, not, not everyone needs to volunteer with the family members. They can also do volunteer work in the, in the office. Uh, sometimes we, we need, you know, paperwork that needs to be filed or whatever, and they can do that type of work also in, in the office. So if, if they're a little bit apprehensive of doing volunteering with the family, 
we will get you there. But in the meantime, you can always volunteer for us in the office also. Oh, that's good to know. Thank you for that. I just had a question that occurred to me. Um, the training, first of all, the volunteer training, is that something that uh, Grace Healthcare requires or is that something that is uh, federally or state mandated as far as, I guess, training for volunteers and then uh, training overall. I mean, you talked about many medical professionals that are involved in this whole healthcare team. So obviously, they're going to be certified and trained by whatever profession they're, they're involved with. But outside of that, as a volunteer, is that a, is that a healthcare type uh, training that you require? Is that state or federally mandated? Um, volunteer training is mandated um, as part of the Medicare hospice benefit. Someone does not have to have a medical background in order to be a hospice volunteer. As, as Elsa had mentioned, we also have clerical help. We're looking for somebody um, to help us with our website, in fact. So if anybody can do that, call our office. It's, it's funny. Our, our website has been under construction for the last five years. So... Um, but, again, we do provide the training. We, we really are very proud of the training that Hilda has put together. It is very extensive and really covers all aspects. And, really, we work hard to ensure that uh, the volunteers who are going to be with our patients are comfortable. Great. All right. Uh, we're going to take a break now. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about payment of the care and what, if any, impact the Health Reform Act had on hospice care. You're listening to Core of the Matter on 90.3 of the Core, streaming online at thecore.fm. My name is Tom, and I'm talking about hospice care with Jill Levine, president of Grace Healthcare Services, and Elsa Fuentes, a community representative. Core of the Matter will be right back after this. This is Core of the Matter on 90.3 of the Core, streaming online at thecore.fm. I'm Tom, and I'm talking about hospice care with Jill Levine, president of Grace Healthcare Services, and Elsa Fuentes, community representative. Just before our break there, we were talking about uh, the type of training and care that uh, Grace Healthcare provides. And one of the questions that occurred to me is, uh, I guess, the team members and, and how that team's composed is, um, on your volunteer side, whether hospice or Grace Healthcare in, in particular makes use of uh, pet therapy, if you will. Uh, yes, we do. Um, uh, Hilda, like uh, uh, Hilda McCoy, like uh, Jill mentioned before, she's in charge of our volunteer program, and she has a vast number of uh, people that do uh, pet therapy. And we take uh, the dogs and the cats and uh, all kinds of little creatures out to visit the families uh, in the nursing homes, assisted livings, and uh, you know, if, if the family is okay with it at home, we would do that too. But it's mostly in the in the assisted livings and the nursing homes that we do that. And any any uh, person that has a pet that uh, wants to volunteer in that capacity, is it correct that they'd have to undergo the still the same two day uh, a volunteer program uh, training program? And number two, um, I guess you got to have some kind of assurances uh, from your side that, that the pet is also trained to mm -hmm. uh, deal with uh, people and patients in that type of situation. Yes, the, pe the, the pet has to be approved by the uh, uh, Pet Therapy uh, Association, and then also they would have to go through the, the volunteer training uh, at Grace. Now, I, lastly, I guess on the training and, and uh, the employees and, and members of the team of Grace Healthcare, uh, off air, we talked briefly about uh, a university of, uh, that you run and organize to, I guess, keep your team members current on the status of hospice care and, and uh, things of that nature. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? 
Sure. Um, Grace is very committed to providing education to our own staff, again, certainly as well as the community. But what we've committed to is what we've named um, and call Hospice University, where at least twice a month we bring in our team members and provide additional education, whether that's in pain management, documentation. We try to find topics that are both relevant as well as those that will enhance the skills of our our existing staff. And we may even call in someone from the outside um, community who can provide an in-service education program for our team members. Thank you, Jill. Turning, uh, I guess, changing the pace here a little bit, I'd just like to talk about the cost of hospice care, uh, how it is paid for, and um, you know how a family member or patient can afford the, the type of care that, that is being provided here. I mean, you talked at the beginning of the program, Joe, that where it was once, I think, primarily an all-volunteer organization is, is now reached a multi-billion dollar type of uh, care that's provided to um, patients across the United States. So generally, how is it paid for? Sure. Um, again, Medicare is the primary payer. In fact, in New Jersey, Medicare paid for 81% of the hospice care that was provided. Medicaid comes in second with private insurance is third. And how we're reimbursed, we're reimbursed a per diem. And the per diem varies from county to county. Uh, it's it's within a few dollars. Um, you know, there's not huge variances by county. under the, And the average per diem is roughly, I want to say, for routine level of care, and I'll get into the different levels of care in a minute, but um, the routine level of care is, again, approximately $150 a day. And all hospices are reimbursed the same amount um, in terms of that reimbursement by county. What's covered under that are the services of the team, all medications, supplies, anything related to the hospice diagnosis are covered under that per diem. And as I said, that includes the services of the team. So you can see that, as I'd mentioned, Grace has the commitment of sending a nurse twice a week. Other hospices may only send the nurse once every two weeks um, because that may be more cost effective. But because we feel it's the right thing to do for the patient, we will send the nurse out at least a couple times a week. And again, services are determined by patient need. So um, that is how that's done. Not getting too technical, but you talked about what's reimbursed by the county. I, I'm assuming that's what's covered under a Medicare or Medicaid-type reimbursement. Does that differ um, as far as the average per day cost and what's provided if you're um, seeking um, coverage under a traditional insurance policy? Yes. Um, it, insurances don't seem, the insurance companies don't seem to pay 100% of that per diem. You wind up negotiating with the insurance companies, and it can be somewhere from 70 to 80% of that per diem are what most insurance companies reimburse us. The one thing I have neglected to mention is that the other thing that is covered under that per diem is at least 13 months of bereavement follow-up for the survivor after the patient dies. And bereavement is done um, through a series of either phone calls, visits, letters that are sent um, to support and provide services to the survivor 
be that a spouse or whoever that might be. So the services continue even after the patient dies, and that is all covered under the per diem. Even the reimbursement starts on the day of admission and ends the day the patient's discharge, be that discharge for because the patient died or the patient is discharged because they no longer meet criteria for hospice or the patient may choose to discharge um, and leave our service because they may decide to seek aggressive treatment. Once a person comes on hospice, they can choose to what's called revoke from hospice services for a variety of reasons. So, With respect to negotiating with the private insurance companies, is that something that uh, Grace Healthcare does on, on behalf of their patients, or is it incumbent upon the individual patient or their family members to undertake that negotiation? No, that is very much our role. Um, we are continuing to work on becoming part of provider panels with all the major insurance companies, but uh, any of the, of the financial pieces that is up to the hospice program. And one thing I'm also very proud of at Grace, we've also taken patients who have no pay or source, charity patients are what we call them, and we treat our charity patients the same as patients that do have a viable pay or source. And we have taken a lot of charity patients because, again, it's the right thing to do. And I guess likewise, uh, any assistance is required with filing a Medicare or Medicaid request, uh, Grace Healthcare assist in that regard too, correct? Yes, the patient doesn't get at all involved. I mean, what the beauty of this is that once a patient comes on hospice, we do all the billing we for hospice care. So the patient never sees a bill. They do not get an invoice from the pharmacy that they have to give to Grace um, or the equipment company. All We pay those bills directly. We have contracts with equipment companies as well as the pharmacy uh, where all medications are provided, again, those that are related to the hospice diagnosis. Thank you. And I, I think from my personal knowledge, just learning this, I, that's, that's a critical component, particularly during uh, what is otherwise an un, probably unbelievable, stressful experience for both the family members and the patients. So that's, that's a good thing to know. Typically, we think of hospice care occurring at someone's home. Um, are there other places which... Uh, Either you specifically provide care or hospice in general provides care. Elsa? Yes, we provide care uh, in the patient's home, in nursing homes that we have uh, contracts with. We also provide it in the assisted living facilities and uh, in hospitals. Some hospitals we have uh, contracts with and we take care of the patients in that particular hospital. Um, so it's a, it's a vast uh, expanding place where we take care of the patients. How about prisons? Any, uh, any hospice care that's provided to prisoners? We can. Uh, we don't do it at this time, but uh, in my previous life, uh, we did uh, take care of uh, some uh, patients uh, that were in, in prison. As a matter of fact, we actually did a uh, compassionate release for a patient that was uh, actively dying, and we got him home just before he died. Okay. I just want to mention that Grace would provide care in a prison. That's usually done via a bid and mm -hmm. contracts with the local prisons, and I actually haven't even seen any requests for that of late, mm -hmm. but it certainly is a service that can be provided in a prison. Okay. Uh, anything that we've missed uh, or you'd like to discuss concerning payment and coverage, uh, either by traditional insurance uh, policies or programs or Medicare or Medicare? No. no. All right. Um, 
What about um, the recent Health Corps Reform Act? Uh, was there any impact that it had on the care that you were able to provide to a patient? And if so, if you could just tell us about that impact and how you addressed it. Sure. Um, the recent legislation that was passed for health care reform was not kind to hospice. And what what has been happening the last year, and this will crescendo in 2013, and probably not crescendo, but we're anticipating 2013 is when a time that we're really going to get hit. But traditionally, our reimbursement has um, historically gone up roughly about 3% annually. And this past year, we saw this decline to 2%, and it is anticipated that the reimbursement from the government will continue to do a backslide, and by 2013, this industry, hospice, will really get hit hard with rate cuts. Uh, we are hoping that through um, the state association, NJHPCO, as well as the National Association, um, NHPCO, which stands for the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization, that um, through lobbying that hopefully this will not occur, but at what was um, part of the health care reform package, if this does happen, we, we will really get hurt. And what will happen is that this will wind up decreasing length of stay on hospice. I mean, as well as the reimbursement really getting hit hard, length of stay for hospice will decrease because hospitals are going to hold on to patients longer. The smaller and rural agencies will not will probably wind up um, going out of business because um, they will no longer be able to operate. And what's also being looked at as we speak, the government has been batting this around for a while, looking at reimbursing us differently for patients in nursing homes versus patients who are at home. So, um, again, even though the same level of care may be provided. Is there anything that uh, us as listeners can do to try to refute uh, the negative impact that you uh, anticipate as a result of the Health Corps Reform Act? Any letters to your local legislators just supporting to really keep the hospice benefit intact would be very helpful. So I would just um, ask that you do that. Generally, when I get information from the local state association, who, again, has been very active with this, I pass it on to all of our staff. And um, if there's a mechanism that could pass it on to your listeners, would be happy to do that because the more people who rally around this, the better off we are. So... And I, I found it interesting that you, one of the negative impacts was um, the decrease of the length of stay or for hospice care would result in the increase of a stay at the hospital. I know you can't predict it, but how likely do you think the hospitals are going to be willing to increase the stay uh, of a patient? Uh, to me, it seems like that the net result of the Health Reform Act is just to throw a patient out and they, they, they're left to fend for themselves. Yeah, it's really impossible to predict. And um, one of the barriers that we have currently to hospice care is that physicians do keep patients in the hospital. I mean, that's been the demise of many of the hospitals in our service area is that length of stay is through the roof because physicians send patients to the hospital to treat and treat. And while I am a proponent of everyone having the ability to access health care everyone having health insurance. I think it's more inherent that you really have to look at 
Um, some people are more worried about putting food on their table than going to a physician for a wellness check. And I think that until we change the habits of people uh, in terms of being proactive with health care and providing people with some basic needs, um, I don't know how effective all of this is going to be, but that's really just my personal opinion. Elsa, you got anything you want to add on that? Mm, no. <laughs> <laughs> At least not now. Um, we're going to, to pause here probably for another break here. When we come back, I just want to talk we'll talk specifically about the Grace Healthcare Services um, and I guess just the status of hospice companies in New Jersey and uh, where the future of the industry going, notwithstanding uh, the impact that the Health Reform Act uh, may have on us. You're listening to Core of the Matter on 90.3. I'm streaming online at thecore.fm. My name is Tom. I'm talking about hospice care with Jill Levine, president of Grace Healthcare Services, and Elsa Fuentes, community representative. Core of the Matter will be right back after this. This is the Core of the Matter on 90.3, the Core, streaming online at thecore.fm. I'm Tom, and I'm talking about hospice care with Jill Levine, president of Grace Healthcare Services, and Elsa Fuentes, community representative. I just want to go back to a little bit uh, talk about the levels of care of hospice. If you, I understand there are certain levels of care. Yes. Under the benefit, there are four different levels of care. And uh, I had mentioned the routine level of care, which most people are on that level of care, and that's when there's not um, a symptom, uh, and I'm sorry, let me backpedal on that one. Okay, routine level of care is done in homes, nursing homes, assisted living residences. If you're in a hospital, you would be on what's called the inpatient level of care. So again, the four levels of care are routine, inpatient, inpatient respite, and continuous care. Inpatient, the inpatient level of care is provided in nursing home or hospital, not in home or an assisted living residence. This level of care, um, at that time, we intensify services. A nurse makes daily visits. This is provided when someone has a symptom that needs to be managed that cannot normally be managed, intractable nausea and vomiting, um, pain out of control. Um, the other level of care that I mentioned is continuous care, and this level of care is provided in a person's home or in assisted living residence. This is done uh, where we provide possibly up to 24 hours um, of care, which is done provided by either a ner- un- provided by a nurse and a home health aide. You provide a minimum of eight hours of care, and again, this is also done for the palliation of symptoms. The other le- level of care is respite, where this is providing relief for the primary caregiver. Someone is in the home, for instance, and the caregiver is starting to burn out. You can send somebody to one of our contracted nursing homes for up to a five-day stay for re- temporary relief for the primary caregiver. The the five uh, day care limitation, can you repeat that then, or is it just a one time thing? No, actually, you can also you can do this um, again within a benefit period. So uh, there is no limit to the number of five day stays, but there needs to be a break in between. You can't do back to back five day stays. A person then should go home because the intent is that during that time, the team will then meet with the family find out what support needs to be given and try to resolve the issue. So respite really is temporary. It's um, not good if respite is provided again four, five, six times within a benefit period. 
We talked about training for the volunteers and your team members. Is there any specific training generally, I guess, that you give to family members, uh, say, for pain management or the administration of uh, medication or things of that nature? Yes. It's not our role to take the place of the primary caregiver who would be the family, the staff at the nursing home. Um, so we do, again, provide a lot of teaching on each visit, and we do teach people about administering medications, and um, certainly if a person is in a nursing home, that staff is already um, knowledgeable about the provision of medication administration and symptom management. We do provide in-service education in the nursing homes that we partner with on everything from Hospice 101 to helping with symptom management, but Again, we do provide education for the primary caregiver. And Elsa, I think you had a couple of things to say as well. Uh, yes, one of the things that uh, we haven't mentioned is that our services are provided. Uh, we have someone on, on duty 24, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, including holidays. Um, our nurses take care of the patients in the daytime, but then also we have on-call nurses that will come out to visit the families if there is a, a need in the middle of the night. And they always, whenever they call the office, they will always be greeted by a person, not an answering machine. What about barriers to hospice? Is there, is there any obstacles that uh, a primary caregiver or a patient faces in trying to receive or in the receipt of hospice care or... Any general resistance overall to hospice care by the medical profession or otherwise? Uh, ha, ha, as we've been talking, um, sometimes the resistance is the fact that a lot of people think hospice is the end. And, and you know, when, when a patient is coming on hospice, uh, they will be dying within, you know, hours or whatever. And, and this is uh, some of the resistance we have to educate. That's one of my jobs, to educate the community and the family members that hospice is a journey, that we start with them until, like Jill said before, sometimes we've had patients that have gotten better because of that one-on-one -on -one care, and, uh, and they have come off hospice. So that's one of the, that I see the, the resistance sometimes. What else, um, I, w I hate to say this, but physicians can be our biggest barrier big for a multitude of reasons. Uh, one of the reasons might be that they are not ready to have that conversation with a patient that they've had a relationship with for the last 20 years. Some physicians are not comfortable having end-of-life conversations. And sometimes, too, it may be monetary in that physicians may or may not know how to bill once a patient comes on service. Plus, when somebody comes on hospice, there is no longer any unnecessary testing or aggressive treatment. Plus, the goal is if someone wants to die at home, you want to keep them at home and not continue to have the hospital be a revolving door for them. And this really just um, is people like Elsa that will go out and meet with the doctors on a one-on-one -on -one basis to provide education, to help give them the tools to have the conversations. We help um, physicians also educate their billers on how to bill when a patient is on hospice. So that we can hopefully overcome those barriers. In addition, in some of the communities that we serve, there are actually cultural barriers to people wanting to access hospice care. And um, for instance, in the African-American community, this is a community that has a tremendous mistrust of the healthcare system because they have been deprived um, historically 
of some access to some pieces within healthcare, and so there's tremendous mistrust. Also, in some cultures, they don't want that family member to die at home because they're afraid that the spirit will continue to live on in the house. So, you have to work and overcome some of these barriers. And again, in some communities, the ER is where you go when you're critically ill and you don't even visit a physician. You just go to the ER for your health care. So how do you get to um, the communities to ensure that there is education provided? Plus, again, in Spanish, the word hospice relates, uh, I'm sorry, um, is translated and it does mean uh, house or shelter. So there are real misconceptions about what hospice means. And what we've done internally is um, we have put together a diversity task force so that we can go out into underserved communities and provide education uh, about hospice and the benefit of hospice care. It's interesting you talked about um, an individual or a family not wanting a person to die at home or in their house. And put inside that the cultural barriers, um, what about if you have small children there and someone that's dear to them comes home to die? How do you deal with that, number one? And number two, are there alternatives of another facility where that person can receive hospice care that's not actually at the home so the small children don't have to endure the day-to-day uh, struggle of watching maybe a loved one pass away? Yes, and that's where the social worker um, will come in, the the social worker who's on the team, uh, in terms of working with the children, providing support for the children, helping to educate the children on the dying process. There are some very beautiful stories, actually, where people have died at home with a family at the bedside, including children, and um, which can be a great experience. However, if you are challenged with... Uh, family member who says, you know what, I don't want my children to see me die, then there are actually hospice inpatient units where a, ho- where a patient can go to die. We can also send patients to a long-term care facility um, at the end if that is most appropriate or to a different setting. So, But we try to honor the wishes of the patients and uh, families. And it's funny, and back to... Um, Actually, not a barrier, but some things that are very interesting. Sometimes we'll go into a home and the daughter will say, my mother doesn't know she's dying, so don't mention that H-word hospice. And what's so interesting about that is then when the nurse or social worker meets with the mom and she'll say, he or she will say, so tell me what you know about where you are with your disease process. They'll say, I'm dying, but don't tell my daughter. (laughs) So it's all very fascinating, the communication that's set up. So we prefer to to educate people because there's so many things that have to happen before you die. And when you get hospice in there, we can help with closure. We can help people um, have what truly is a good death because there really is such a thing as a good death. Thank you, Jill. Um, certainly, it's not an easier uh, subject to discuss, and, and I think one that we all uh, avoid to the very end. So it's good to know that there's people out there like you and, and Elsa to uh, help us in that regard. Um, real quickly, uh, we've talked about the care. We've talked about the payment. What's the, what's the lay of the land of hospice in New Jersey? Uh, if, if I want my choice of hospice care, how do I go around choosing that? How many companies are there? And what should I look for in a, in a hospice care provider? 
Um, we were actually the 50th hospice in the state. At this point, there are 58 hospices in New Jersey. So, um, And it's so interesting that you would think that it would be all warm and fuzzy out there, but it tends to be very competitive. <laughs> you can ask Elsa about her experiences, and uh, it can be a little bit crazy. But um, the, the good news is that there are 58 hospices because the need is there. In fact, um, there was a study that came out a couple of years ago called the Dartmouth study, and New Jersey was ranked as one of the worst in the country in terms of people accessing hospice care. Most people die in hospitals in New Jersey, and it has been proven that hospice is not only cost-effective for the government, but an option that people want. What we find on our customer satisfaction surveys is people frequently comment, I wish I knew about this sooner. But again, that goes back to conversations with physicians and others who could refer hospice earlier on. But, um, again, there are 58 hospices in the state. If somebody um, were to look for a hospice, um, you can talk to your physician to find out who the physician might have a comfort level using, who the physician has received um, good feedback on that hospice program. Other people who refer to us are discharge planners, case managers, or social workers in the hospital setting. Uh, key people within the nursing home, possibly the social worker. Um, Elsa, have I missed anyone? No, no. Okay. Um, so I would, and you could also contact the state association, the New Jersey Hospice and Palliative Care Organization, and they can provide a list of hospices in the area. Um, I wouldn't recommend you interview every hospice that provides service in a particular particular area because, again, this is a really difficult time. Maybe narrow it down to a couple of hospices. And, of course, we highly recommend Grace for you <laughs> because, uh, you know, my management team has over 65 years of hospice experience collectively. And um, my program started, there were five of us at my dining room table. We've now grown to an organization of over 275 employees. And when people ask why, how have you grown and how have you grown so quickly, it truly is about the work that we do, our commitment to providing exceptional hospice care and ensuring that people have the best care available. Super. We only got a few more minutes left. Is there anything you'd like to, to talk about uh, that we've overlooked or missed uh, concerning hospice care or Grace Healthcare in general? Elsa? Uh, the only thing I wanted to add to uh, what Jill was just saying is when you're looking for a hospice and you call us, I will go out and just meet with the family and explain what hospice is all about. Sometimes families uh, want to hear more about what they what they can get from hospice and, and what it's it all about. And then they can go to the doctor and say, I really would like to try this program. So families can help uh, themselves and us to, to help them in, in the long run. All right. Well, I... Uh Thank you very much, both you ladies. Jill Levine, the president of Grace Healthcare Services, and Elsa Fuentes, community representative, for stopping by the station today and talk to us on the core of the matter. We were talking today about hospice care. If you want to learn anything more about hospice care or uh, Jill's company, Grace Healthcare, you can reach them at 866-447-0246. And I believe you can ask for Hilda, is that correct? Volunteers, anything. If you want to volunteer, if you have questions about the hospice program, and as uh, Jill mentioned earlier in the program, they have a website under construction. If you want to volunteer and help out in that regard, too, if you're a budding webmaster, I'm sure they'll gladly uh, take your, take your um, 
offer to, to help them in that regard. But for the moment, uh, you can go to the website, www.gracehcs.com, and uh, can find out more information about that. Thank you very much, ladies. Thank you. You've been listening to The Core of the Matter on 90.3 The Core. Opinions expressed on The Core of the Matter are those of the participants only, and not necessarily those of WVPHFM or Rutgers University.